tradition, discipline, honor, excellence. Oh, I just got chills, Pat. I just got chills. Travesty, horror, decadence, excrement. Carpe diem, even if it kills me. Hello, and welcome to the Untitled Gen X podcast, a podcast dedicated to the pop culture that raised us. I'm Lori, a writer and pop culture lover who's thrilled to welcome back my longtime friend, national board certified language arts teacher and college professor, Dr. Pat, to join me in carpeing this diem as we suck the marrow out of 1989's coming of age classic, Dead Poet Society. Welcome back to the pod, Pat. Good to be here again, especially, especially for this movie. This is, this is the movie that put me on the course. You are a teacher. You are a college professor. You have a PhD. What is your PhD in specifically? I have a PhD in education, curriculum, and instructions. Um, I'm just really interested in how and why people learn and how and why people teach. Awesome. And so what is your undergraduate in? I majored in English, and I spent most of high school and a good amount of college and even into my grad work thinking I was a math science person. And I like things that are, you know, locked in and, you know, there's hard mm-hmm. data that you can look at. And I took statistics for a year at my PhD level and only at the end of it realized, I don't care what the numbers say. I want to know what they mean. And that's the qualitative side. That's the interpretive side. I mean, it makes sense. That's the stuff that English deals with and history and political science. And, and you've like always that. had a passion for literature though. I love stories. You're a storyteller. I know that you were an avid reader growing up, loved learning. And so when I think of you, it just makes sense. And when I think about this movie, you make sense as the perfect guest. Well, it was a crisscross of the fact that I always really, really liked um, Rob Williams before that. He is still to this day, one of my personal heroes. I mean, 1989, end of my freshman year. Mom has died that fall previous. I'm in this weird, what do I want to be when I grow up? You know, kind of, you're thinking, gosh, I'm going to have to make a choice at some point. Well, people keep asking you. They expect you to know. I have a freshman son. People expect him to know what he's going to do. I'm like, calm down. He's 14. Give the kid some time. I, I don't believe in coincidences. I believe that things happen for a reason. and. With my mom passing away, one of the things that happened that to this day still blows my mind is the fact that my classmates at school closed ranks around me in a way that I've I've never experienced. And I I'd certainly had never experienced at that point where complete strangers just they had my back. And I remember getting a phone call from a friend of mine. And, and, you know, we didn't talk all that much or anything like that, but she called me up and she said, um, Hey, there's a rumor going around school that your mom died and I wanted to call you. And I said, yeah, it's true. And you could tell there was like a silence on the other end of like, oh crap, that wasn't the answer I was expecting. I was expecting right. it to be a, oh no, just kidding. Ha ha. And, and, uh, two days later I got a card from her that every single one of my classmates in all of my classes had signed. Um, that is beautiful. I can't put my hands on it or if I, if I put it somewhere safe, I've never been able to find it again, but it doesn't matter because it's been etched on my heart that so many people would go out of their way and they just always had my back for everything. And so I just assumed this, this is what happened. This is just the way it is. And apparently that's not just the way it is. 
but what grew out of that is the fact a very, very deep sense of obligation to my classmates, to my community, to my school, that I had a duty that if people had my back like that, I had a duty to turn around and return that favor. And I ended up spending 18 years of my life um, doing just that, teaching kids and working with them and helping them through the rough spots and trying to support them through everything. And at the end of 18 years, I kind of felt like, okay, you know, not, not that this will ever be fully paid, but I've, I've, I've done what I need to do. Right. And, and the idea too, that your classmates can become, and it happens in this movie, your chosen family, they, they can support you. They can love you. They can help see you through. It's a bond that it's friendship, it's family, it's coming of age. It's all of these things at this really pivotal point in your life when you're trying to discover who you are and or who you could be. My closest friends are the people I've known since sixth grade or before. Amazing. So you saw the movie, yeah? (laughs) I don't remember the first time I saw this movie. I know that I was incredibly moved by it. I suspect I saw it on home video. I did own it on VHS. I was a big VHS collector back in the day. I loved my movies and I watched them over and over and over again. And this was one of them. And I mean, it didn't hurt. There was a lot of eye candy for me as, as a young, you know, what was I in 1989 in eighth grade? Like I liked Ethan Hawke in 1989 and I don't, I think we all did. I think all the girls did. So it was like all the cute boys in the movie, but I was inspired by it from here. I was like, I love English. I love reading. (laughs) I love writing. I love poetry. I love it all because I don't know, there was just so much passion and possibility in it all. And I don't know, I like, it got to me, it got me right in the feels. The fact that you have this podcast, looking back at what essentially are the stories of our youth that we grew up with, whether that's Uh family ties, whether that's karate kid, whether that's fill in the blank, it's the stories that mean something to us. Um, I'm not going to get all Ulysses and Odyssey and all that, but, but it's the fact that that's the reason that literature, that's the reason those stories endure because they still make us feel something. They do. And it's amazing because I say all the time, a podcast dedicated to the pop culture that raised us. You can count on your favorite characters in books and you can count on your favorite characters in film to just be there. They're always there. And thankfully, the story doesn't change. Your view on it changes. Right. Maybe maybe you don't see yourself as one of the kids in Dead Poets. Now you're the teacher or you're the, you've got help, you're the administrator. Right. But those stories never change. And as a result, you know they're secure. Ethan Hawke will always be the young Ethan Hawke Shy Todd. Yeah. Right. I just connected with the Robin Williams character. And I was like, that's the kind of experience that I want to engender for people and the kind of passion that I want to cause people to feel about literature. Literature is just the medium, but we've all had those people in our lives that we look at and we go, wow, that was really, really cool. They, they helped me get through this, deal with this, understand something that I didn't understand before. And that's the appeal of teaching. And to help me discover something about myself, which we will get into with Mr. Keating and Todd. Right. Yeah. I'm sure in the process of things, when you looked at the backstory in this, you know, they wanted to make it into a musical the first time. Disney, who owned Touchstone, you know, they liked the script. They thought it was cool, but they're like, hey, these boys into poetry, like maybe they're more into dance. Let's make this a musical and let's call it the Sultans of Strut. I can't even imagine what this would look like. 
Well, and then it's like Robert Sean Leonard was in the film Swing Kids, which, which was phenomenal. Oh, my God. Loved it. Saw it in the theater in high school was all about that film. So I was like, oh, what if he had done this as Sultans of Strut and then moved on to Swing Kids? He would forever be known as like the musical theater <laughs> type of performer. <laughs> right. So, of course, this film was directed by Peter Weir who is known for The Mosquito Coast, Witness, Green Card, The Truman Show. And yet, he was not the first choice. He was not the first choice. There was another director who was originally tapped to do this, Jeff Canoe. Who had directed Revenge of the Nerds. You're like, what? You're just going, um... How do we get from here to there? (laughs) Right. There's just certain things that don't work well. And if you look at the possibilities of casting, it's even crazier. It is. But when it was initially going to be Jeff Canoe, and at that time, Mel Gibson was slated to play John Keating. Yes. And I had also read Liam Neeson. Oh, there's a list. Bill Murray, Alec Baldwin, Mickey Rourke. I saw the Mickey Rourke and I was like, really now? Dustin Hoffman. Which I can see. Yes. Who was also going to be the, that was going to be his directorial debut before he pulled out. Oh, interesting. It kind of works backwards that in this case, Disney was set on Robin Williams. They really wanted him for this part. And this was after Good Morning, Good Morning Vietnam. Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And Williams indicated that he wasn't comfortable working with Canoe. And so they ended up finally giving it to Peter Weir. Okay. And Robin Williams, when asked about it later, said that Peter Weir was the best director he had ever worked with. Apparently, Peter Weir was very laid back, very chill, um, would play music in between takes and gave minimal direction, was not very, you know, in your face, just worked really hard to make it a good experience. Because he wanted to show the relationship between Todd and Keating develop. Uh, He filmed the entire movie in chronological order, which is rare. And he also had the young cast boarding together because he wanted them to develop a relationship. And that was part of why they filmed in chronological order also, because he wanted the strength of their relationship to develop over time, just the way it does in the film. So should we should we jump into the movie? Yeah, I did want to touch on the fact, though, that the script was written by Tom Shulman who won Best Original Screenplay Oscar that year. He is amazing. So this was based on an inspirational professor of English he had named Samuel Pickering. And in the original script, Keating was battling Hodgkin lymphoma, but the director cut it because he didn't want to like make this inspirational because this man was dying. He said that they didn't need it. You didn't have to have that part of it. Right. In an essay, Pickering wrote that he sometimes taught class while standing on a desk, as Keating does, or in a trash can. One of his students remembers Pickering making him stand on a chair and flap his arms every time the class said the word nevermore while reading Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. (laughs) And Pickering was quoted as saying, I did such things not so much to awaken students as to entertain myself. If I had fun, I suppose I thought the boys would have fun too, and maybe even enjoy reading and writing. That's awesome. I love it. And this was Shulman's first screenplay to make it to the big screen. Isn't that amazing? And he went on to do Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. What about Bob, which is one of my 
all time favorite films. I will be Baby covering steps. it at some point. Baby steps. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm sailing. And uh, Medicine Man, Sean Connery. He gives us an idea of the timeline. He said, I wrote it in 85. They, Disney, started liking it in 87 and then liked it enough to make it in 88. Four years felt like a lifetime back then, but I think it's a lot of luck just to get it made. Four years is pretty quick. Yeah, I'll say. Well, it's a it's a phenomenal story. And the budget on this was 16.4 million. My God, it made in the box office 235.9 million dollars. It exploded. And it's cemented in the minds of students and teachers everywhere. Absolutely. So it was released June 2nd, 1989. And I think we should get into it. We have a lot to say. This is absolutely such a great movie. It still holds up. I was so excited to watch it again. I must have seen this film a hundred times. And you know what? It never gets old. And I get something new out of it every single time I watch it. This is at least in my top five. Oh, yeah. Because it's that good. And so we open. It is 1959. It's back to school. We open on the sound of bagpipes at the prestigious Welton Academy for Boys. So it's a super old educational institution that prides itself on four pillars. Tradition, discipline, honor, excellence. Yes, you got it. And and I love I love what the boys do with it later, where they go travesty, horror, decadence, excrement. I know it's so good. What do they call it? They call it Hilton, like it's Hilton instead of Welton. It's not Welton. It's Hilton. Hilton yes. And was filmed entirely at St Andrew's School, which is a functioning prep school in Delaware. Yep. It was the first film to be shot entirely in Delaware. It was originally going to be shot in Rome, Georgia. I mean, they had a set and everything. And then Weir decided he was going to use snow. And it was really expensive to manufacture snow in Georgia. In Delaware, it's free if you film at the right time. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so this is when we meet the headmaster, Headmaster Nolan. Played by? I didn't even look that up. Who's really? Played by? Yeah. Did you ever watch um, St. Elsewhere? Not really. That was like a boring parent show. Norman Lloyd played this hard ass on St. Elsewhere. So he was perfectly cast and he's intimidating. He is. And so we see a big, you know, parent and student meeting at the beginning of the year. It's move in day. And and we learn that it's all about prestige and rigor at this preparatory institution where over 75% of their students go on to the Ivy League. So it's serious business here. You know, this is why you parents have been sending us your children, blah, blah, blah. You know? Right. Because we make them into men that go on to the Ivy League. Or you talk about white privilege, you know. Oh, totally. There is no diversity. There. There's no, <laughs> diversity is like, oh, look, there's a redhead or two. Yay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes. Yeah. And so the headmaster introduces the newest member of the faculty, English teacher John Keating, obviously played by Robin Williams. And so he's an alumnus and an honors graduate of the school. Ethan Hawke was being interviewed. And he said, even to me at 18, it was obvious Robin Williams was in a tremendous amount of pain. Anyone who was watching knew. And Norman Lloyd, that when we were doing Dead Poet Society, Robin Williams' first marriage to Valerie Velarde was breaking up. He masked the whole thing very carefully. It was never evident in the work. It was all kept under control. But that was a really traumatic point in... Rob Williams's life and mm -hmm. to balance the success that he was enjoying professionally with the personal trauma that was under that he was undergoing. Oh yeah. 
he really struggled with that. Wow. Just to, just to point out. So he stands up and turns and everyone sees him. Who's that new guy? Right. Because everyone there is a hundred years old. Pretty much. Yeah. So we meet shy boy, Todd Anderson, of course, played by Ethan Hawke. I've covered a lot of Ethan Hawke. I'm finding a theme. I know, like between Reality Bites and Before Sunrise, but okay. We meet Todd Anderson. He's got some ginormous shoes to fill because his older brother was a popular student. He was a valedictorian and apparently, quote, one of Welton's finest. So even when Neil first meets him and he says, oh, my brother went here and Neil says, oh, so you're that Anderson. Yep. So he meets his dorm mate, which is Neil Perry, played by Robert Sean Leonard. And Neil is just a really nice guy. He's super likable. He's so nice to Todd. And he just really wants to like bring him into the fold with his friend group. And this is when we meet his friends. Knox Overstreet, yep. who is played by Josh Charles, who mm-hmm. later goes on to success with The Good Wife. Mm-hmm. Um, we meet Charlie Dalton, yep, played by Gail Hansen, who interestingly enough, he was the 29-year-old. Right. Uh, when this is being filmed. With the baby face. Yeah. With the baby face. Stephen Meeks, glasses, Meeks. red curly hair, <laughs> and Cameron. And that's played by Dylan Cushman. And later on, we meet Pitts, who is the Pitts. other one that, that gets added. The rather unfortunate name. Right. Yes. <laughs> Another unusual name. <laughs> Another unusual name, yes. Charlie, of course, being the rebel that we see throughout, lights up a cigarette, and suddenly there's a knock at the door. Charlie, in a practiced move, slams the cigarette down, slams his foot on top of it, and they all stand as Mr. Perry walks in. Yes. Neil's dad, Mr. Perry, of course, played by Kurtwood Smith, that we probably all best know as the father from that 70s show. And he tells Neil, you have to drop the annual. You need to focus on your grades. You're going to become a doctor. So I'm sorry, like no fun for you. Got to hit the books. And Neil tries to talk to his dad, but he is immediately shut down. And his dad tells him, once you finish medical school, you can do as you please. But until then, you do as I tell you. Do you understand? And Neil says, yes, sir. His dad is not playing. And and the line he says is, I've decided you're going to drop the school in. Which is, it's not, I'm asking you or I need you to consider or, you know, the things where looking at this from a parenting point of view, this is beyond old school. I mean, I guess for 1959, maybe it fits with the, you know, father knows best and yep. yes, sir. No, you ma'am. don't question me. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just, it is what it is, but this is interesting because it's also developmentally in terms of United States history. This is the emergence of the concept of a teenager where up till this point, I don't know if you've seen like the old images of like, you know, before this, it was, you were a kid and then you were an adult and that right. was it. And that was all. And if you go to the early history, you, your adulthood started, well, 13. Uh, if you go like at 1900, you'd start working, you know, and the 1929 crash, we suddenly have the Great Depression and school becomes compulsory where we need to get these kids off the streets and we need to get them out of the factories. We need to give adults jobs. So school becomes compulsory that you are required to continue going to school. And in the 50s, if you think of like James Dean Uh and that era, Uh suddenly you have the emergence of here's the teenager. Here's what it means to be a teenager. Right. For the upper class, which clearly they are, you're going to do what I say and I don't give a damn what you think or what you want. 
it, none of that factors in. Right. So it's now the first day of school and the boys are meeting their teachers and we get a feel for like how stringent and absolutely boring the curriculum is there at Welton. The kids are now in their English class and they're waiting. One thing, one thing I should jump back to just in the transition from that scene to the opening first day of school scene. Birds. So many birds. And this becomes an ongoing symbol of freedom. The birds are able to fly and the noise and the craziness of the boys in the stairway, it transitions to. But we're going to come back to these birds as symbol of freedom. Over, Sorry, this is this is the teacher in me coming out. I apologize. No, I, I clock the birds. I have birds written throughout <laughs> my notes. It was, it was a lot of bird work. That's why, like you pointed out, Keating's classroom is so different. Chemistry, Latin, trig, right. traditional, boring. Right. So the boys are in the English class. They're waiting. There's no teacher. And they're like, what's up? And then Mr. Keating strolls in as casually as can be. He's whistling the 1812 overture and he strolls right out. He walks in, he walks out. And then he peeks back into the class and he motions them out into the hallway. Well, come on. And he says, oh, captain, my captain. And asks who knows where that came from. Nobody knows. So he reveals to them that it's the title of a poem by Walt Whitman about Abraham Lincoln. So we have Keating say, yes, it's, you know, oh, captain, my captain. And the fact that he's named Keating and it's John Keating, which sounds really similar to John Keats, who is the romantic poet. Right. And uh, the fact that Keating loves poetry, but the fact that they added an I-N-G makes it a verb or an action. So he's a more active John Keats. His name has, has symbolism. And he says, oh, captain, my captain. And this becomes important in the movie, but also important in life because with the death of Robin Williams um, by suicide, but there were also other factors involved at that point. Yes. Um, I don't know if you watched Robin's Wish. It chronicles the entire history of his disease and what they found out after they did the autopsy and they realized you know, he had um, Louis body dementia. Yeah, he was facing a devastating diagnosis. His body had started to shut down. He had already been struggling with mental health issues. It was a lot. He was in a tremendous amount of pain. Constantly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is when he asks Pitts to read To the Virgins Make Much of Time, a poem by Robert Herrick. Yep. So he says, gather ye rosebuds while ye may. And he asks the boys. Does anyone know the Latin term for the sentiment? And Cameron knows it means seize the day. Wait a minute. It wasn't Cameron. It was Meeks. It was? Yeah, because Meeks is the Latin genius. Oh, I thought it was Cameron. Okay. No, no, no. Okay. Don't feel he's the other redhead. You know what? There are there are a lot of boys in this film. There are. You have Keating who says, let me dispel a few rumors before they fester into facts. I too attended. Helton, Helton and survived. Right. And no, I was not who you see before you now. I was the intellectual equivalent of a 98 pound weekly. I yep. would go to the beach and people would kick copies of Byron in my face. <laughs> it's so good. And, and this is when he asks the boys to look into the display cases in the hallway. They're housing old photos and trophies of former students. He says, we are food for worms, lads. Yes. Because believe it or not, each and every one of us in this room is one day going to stop breathing, turn cold, and die. And so right from the get-go, whoa. You ready for the twist on this scene? Yes. This was not the first scene they shot. Remember, he, he did it in chronological order. Yeah. 
they had a different version of this scene. In the original version, he stands up on a desk in a classroom. And really? he talks and he's, he's very, he's very interactive with the boys. And they sent the dailies over to the studio and the studio was like, oh my God, we love it. And Peter Weir said, yeah, we're not using that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and they went back to the whistling and walking scene okay. and they felt that it worked. Better. So there were actually two scenes, uh, you know, standing on the desks and, or I guess three, depending on how you three, count. Right. And he said, no, that was just too much. And so they they cut it out and they changed it. Oh, I like this. I like. I think this. so. It's it's much more quietly weighty. Is that yeah. makes sense? Yeah. No, it does. And he tells them, "Carpe diem, seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary." And the boys don't know they're walking out. That was different. <laughs> they're receiving this in different ways. Like Neil is inspired by this. He's all in with Keating from the very beginning. And the rest of them are sort of like, "Mm, not so sure. And and Cameron's response, is he going to test us on that? (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. So the boys, they plan a study group. Neil invites Todd, but Todd's a total introvert. He declines. And so Knox Overstreet, played by Josh Charles. I know him best as Brian in Don't Tell Mom, The Babysitter's Dead. (laughs) Classic, yes. So he's asked to attend a dinner at the Danbury's and the the Danbury's are friends of his parents. So like a boring parent meal. When he arrives, a beautiful girl named Chris answers the door and he is smitten. It is legit. Love at first sight. He learns that Chris is the girlfriend of Chet Danbury, the Danbury's football player, asshole son. Yeah. Womp womp. Did you catch the small Laura Flynn Boyle shot in the back? Yes. She had a larger role and was cut from the film. And when did they tell her she was cut? According to a 1991 yes. interview, she was told the day of the film's premiere. She had been edited out of the film and should not attend. And it's just <sighs> like, dude. So Max returns to school and tells the guys like, I just met the most beautiful girl I've ever seen in my entire life. And she's practically engaged to Chet Danbury. And from here on out, he is just a lovesick goner. He he's all in. And the screenwriter wrote about the fact he said this was based on a guy I knew in college who he, he was in the dorms with me. He just adored this girl. Her name was Chris. Oh, okay. and he's like he failed miserably. And he literally came into us and said, "Guys, I'm leaving. Here's the address to send my stuff to." And he said he walked out of school. He hitched a ride across country and I wow. never saw him again. Can you imagine? Whew. Okay, so it's the next day in class and Keating has Neil read the introduction to their poetry textbook. I think it's called like Understanding Poetry. And in it, it explains how the quality of poetry can be rated on a graph to determine whether or not it's great. So he's saying, calculating the total area of the poem yields the measure of its greatness, you know, and Keating's up there and he's, he's graphing this whole thing. And Cameron's dutifully taking notes. He's taking notes with the ruler. It was so classic. Yes. And Keating says it's excrement and instructs the class to rip out the chapter. The kids do not know what to do with this instruction. They are rule followers. They are super reluctant. And Keating's like, it's not the Bible. You're not going to hell for it. Rip it out. And, and did you know who goes first? Was it Neil? It's who Charlie. It? Charlie is the rebel. Always. That's right. Okay. Nawanda. 
they they've talked about the fact about 15% of Keating's dialogue yes. was Im- improvised by Williams. He was really uncomfortable. He was very serious with the script and he he didn't want to diverge from it or anything like that. And Weir told him, you've got to let it go. You've got to relax into this role. And so he took the boys in and he, he said, listen, this scene is, we're not, we're, we're going to film it, but the scene is not going to be used. And the scene later on that he uses where he says, you know, perhaps you can picture, you know, Shakespeare being done by John Wayne. Well, is this a dagger I see before me? Yep. That was what they did on an improv and it made the film. Right. And once that happened, it became something where Williams was able to relax and say, okay, it's not, I mean, he had been doing stand-up comedy and cocaine for quite a while. (laughs) And it was something where he was able to understand it. Interesting. And, and Charlie tears out the first page and everyone looks, (gasps) so all the boys start tearing him out and talking and getting very loud. And Mr. McAllister charges it. What the hell is going on here? Right. And and then he sees Keating and he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't think anyone was in here. Like your class is so unruly. There's very much a, this is my kingdom. Yes. This is my right to teach my students as I see fit. And McAllister coming in violates a norm. He thinks, okay, if Keating's not there, then an adult needs to be present. And that's me. And I will step in. And teachers are notorious for being obnoxious and stepping in and doing the right thing because they think it needs to be done the right thing. And whether you think it's the right thing or not, I'm going to do it. And McAllister backs down as he ought to. Yeah. And Keating tells the students, this is a battle, a war, and the casualties could be your hearts and souls. He tells them that in his classroom, they will learn to think for themselves. And he believes that words and ideas can change the world. And then looks at them and says, huddle up. And this is where one of the things that's quietly present in this film is intimate masculinity. You don't get to see a lot of intimate masculinity where men are allowed to be friends, to care, to show that they care. And has the line, and it's it's a great line. He says, we don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race. And the human race is filled with passion. And medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for. To quote from Whitman, O me, O life, of the questions of these recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, cities filled with the foolish, what good amid these, O me, O life? Answer, that you are here, that life exists and identity, that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. What will your verse be? He turns, looks at Todd. And we see Todd, you know, deer in the headlights. I have no idea. I mean, Neil is inspired and Todd looks scared shitless. And then we come back to McAllister and Keating at dinner. He is questioning Keating's unorthodox teaching methods. He's like, you are taking a big risk in making your students think that they are artists. And they'll hate you for it. And Keating's basically like, I'm only trying to make them free thinkers. And he's like, free thinkers at 17? What? And then you see Keating <laughs> say something that actually seems to wound McAllister. He's like, I never pegged you as a cynic. Right. And he's like, I'm not a cynic. I'm a realist. And But what's interesting to me is that while I mean, they don't seem like the kind of guys, the two kind of teachers, they seem to be diametrically opposed. 
And yet they sit next to each other at dinner. And later on, when Mr. Nolan comes to see Keating, he's like having tea with McAllister. I think they have a mutual respect for each other and, and what they each bring to the table, even though they're very different. Well, and McAllister teaches like Latin and right. teaches it in the most rote, boring <laughs> way. <laughs> and the boys get a hold of Keating's senior yearbook. Neil's like, look, I found him in the annual. Look at, there's this thing called the Dead Poet Society. Like, what is this? It's one of his clubs. Like, what is this about? And so they track him down to ask him and um, Keating tells him, like, can you keep a secret? And they all sort of huddle down again. And he says, the Dead Poet Society was a secret club and they would gather in the old Indian cave. And it was a club that was dedicated to sucking the marrow out of life through poetry. And Keating tells them, gods were created, gentlemen, and women swooned, which was really all that Knox needed to kind of decide to do this because it's like, oh, okay, I could get Chris. So Neil loves this idea, right? He's like, we are going to resurrect the Dead Poet Society. He puts a plan into action. And we see the first page of five centuries of verse because Neil goes back to his room. And the book is there. Mm -hmm. And five centuries of verse. And they decide to go to a cave. Yes. So they sneak out. They risk some hefty demerits to resurrect. Yes. To resurrect the Dead Poet Society with their inaugural meeting. I don't know if you knew this. The cave where the boys meet was not an actual cave. It was a set that was made out of latex, but it was based on a real location. Wolf Cave in Delaware. So, of course, you know, they're in there and and they're teenagers. They're looking at centerfolds, they're eating snacks, they're smoking. They're, it's poetry, life, it's love, it's all the things. So the next day in English, this takes us to the moment that Keating famously stands on his desk. He says, I stand upon my desk to remind myself that we must constantly look at things in a different way. The world looks very different from up here. Boys, you must strive to find your own voice because the longer you wait to begin, the less likely you are to find it at all. That's another great line. Oh my God, so good. And so this is when he invites each of them to stand on his desk to look at the classroom from a different point of view. At the end of class, Keating tasks the students with writing an original poem to be delivered in front of the class on Monday. And this is when he calls Todd out specifically. Todd's like on the edge of the desk about to jump off and he stops him and he said, don't think that I don't know that this scares the hell out of you, Anderson. And he's just like, oh, shit. So, of course, all of this, you know, day seizing inspires Neil to audition for a local production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. And he's extremely excited. He tells Todd, I'm going to act for the first time in my whole life. I know what I want to do. Carpe diem. And Todd is quick to just list all the reasons why it's not going to work out. To the point where Neil finally looks, whose side are you on? And then he asks Todd why nothing Keating says inspires him to take action in his own life. And Todd's like, look, Neil, I'm not like you. You talk and people listen. I can take care of myself. And he tells him to butt out. Butt out. And Neil points out being in means you got to do something, not just say you're in. Yep. Meanwhile, Knox does something rebellious with his sweater tied around his neck. He sneaks a bike off campus to go to Chris's public school. Did you write down birds? 
birds everywhere. Yes. And he sees Chris in her cheerleading uniform, getting all snuggly with her boyfriend. And it bums him out big time to see. We cut to Neil. Yes. Neil is super stoked. He nabbed the part of Puck in the play. And I actually have played Puck. Really? In a scene in drama. Yes. In my lifetime. Yes. I can boast to this. It is something that I share with Neil. And he comes running in saying, I'm going to play Puck. I'm going to play Puck. And if you listen very carefully in the background, you can hear somebody say, Puck you. (laughs) (laughs) Puck you. (laughs) And so he says a big Puck you to his dad by forging a permission letter from his father to the school that would allow him to participate. And Todd's like, you're crazy to do this. And Neil does not care. And then we have Todd alone in his room, alone with his poetry, smiling. And pacing and criticizing and then tearing. He's trying to write that goddamn poem that's due on Monday. And so now we're in class and Knox recites his poem. It's a heartfelt love poem titled To Chris. What a surprise. I know. And then Hopkins, who's the next kid that gets up and gives. What is it? The cat sat down on the mat, something like that. Matt Carey, the actor who portrays Hopkins and delivers the line, the cat sat on the mat, was a St. Andrews student at the time. This is all shot at St. Andrews School. He earned more than his teachers that year. Oh, my God. That's so great. Okay. As from a teaching perspective, there are kids who are your rebels. They are your hellraisers. They are your class clowns. And my policy was always, if you can get the class clown on your side, you have a very potent weapon. And so Keating doesn't want to shut him down, but he wants to tell him, dude, I see what you're doing. So he walks over. He's like, you know, he has that line. of like, congratulations. You are the first person to get a negative score on the Pritchard scale. And everybody laughs and they get it. We're not laughing at you. We're laughing near you, you know, but then he turns. I don't mind that your poem's simple. But don't let your stuff be ordinary. Yep. And in doing that, he doesn't take the bait. Hopkins rebels and he's testing Keating. He's trying to see. Charlie does it all the time. and you see Keating rolling with it, even from the very first day when he says, you know, why does the author use these words? And, he, and, and Charlie says, because he's in a hurry. And he's like, Dang, thank you for playing. Right. You know, and it's he makes it a joke that you got the wrong answer, but that's OK. You know, right. he doesn't shame him for it. No. In a way that these kids are probably expecting. Well, and one of the most difficult things as a teacher, you remember middle school and high school talking in front of your peers. I mean, we talked about public speaking, but talking in front of your peers, giving an answer. You remember being like, what's the answer? And no one would raise their hand uh-huh. because that means you talk about vulnerability. you got to be really brave to be vulnerable to say, I could have the wrong answer, but whatever. The boys are willing to put themselves out there. The dynamic in this class, you know, it is different than McAllister's class where there's reciting, you know, all of the conjugations. Right. So Keating can see that Todd is just panicked in his chair and he decides he's going to put him out of his misery. He calls him to recite his poem and Todd's like, I didn't do the assignment. And Keating tells the class, Mr. Anderson thinks that everything inside of him is worthless and embarrassing. Isn't that right? Isn't that your worst fear? I think you're wrong. I think you have something inside of you that is worth a great deal. Now, I wanted to ask you, Pat, as a teacher, what are your thoughts on calling a kid out like this so publicly? Because on the one hand, okay, it works out. On the other hand, this is horrifying. We had a teacher who used to do this in middle school to students, and um, 
it was really not okay. I think you know who I'm talking about. Yep. And um, I have really, really complicated feelings about this. What are your thoughts? First off, if you ask teachers about where they feel their worst moments are, they will tell you it's any point that jeopardizes the relationship between them and their students. So he's taking a huge risk because if Todd doesn't come through, you know, he might believe in Todd. He might think he knows Todd. He might believe that Todd couldn't possibly have blown off this assignment and that he does have something to say. Okay. But if he's wrong, this could destroy that. That's one of the things as a teacher, you have a lot of power and you can't use it capriciously. He's trying to show, I have faith in you. and That's valuable. That's a really important thing. I felt like the whole Mr. Anderson thinks that everything inside of him is worthless and embarrassing. Isn't that right? Isn't that your worst fear? I'm like, isn't that right? This is embarrassing. Isn't that your worst fear? No, this is my worst fear. You are literally pulling out of me my worst fear and you are bringing it into the light and you are being so public about it. This whole thing was a private conversation. Nowadays, he's making a calculated risk and obviously it pays up. Ethan Hawke was being interviewed and Ethan said that he and Williams did not have the smoothest working relationship while filming it. And Hawke said, I really wanted to be a serious actor. I had read Stanislavski and I really wanted to be in character and I didn't want to laugh. The more I didn't laugh, the more insane Williams got. He would make fun of me. Oh, this one doesn't want to laugh. And the more smoke would come out of my ears. He didn't understand. I was trying to do a good job. So I thought he hated me because he would constantly lay into me. No sooner would action start that he would lay into Todd over here. That was my character's name. And so he also, in referring to the barbaric y'all, said that was the scene where I was supposed to read a poem of the class. And it's the first time in my life I had ever experienced the thrill of acting and the thrill of losing yourself. Mm-hmm. It's a high that I've chased my whole life since that day with Robin. I had that very quote in my notes. I yeah. love that. So it was a really powerful moment for Ethan Hawke professionally in his young acting career. The way Weir films it is, fun- I mean, that literally after having him perform a barbaric yelp and he hasn't, you know, he won't say it and he's finally, good God, boy, and yelp. He's like, there it is. There is a barbarian in you. Right. And then. And Todd wants to die. Todd's up there and he is dying a thousand deaths, right? Right. And he's asking him to shut out the class and give a description of this portrait of Walt Whitman. And and this is when he describes him as a sweaty-toothed madman and what he does next. And the whole thing is so powerful and poetic. And the class is moved to applaud, you know? And Keating tells him. Don't you forget this. Mm -hmm. He surprised himself. Right. As a teacher, it's really, really difficult. But there are those moments where you try and capture lightning in a bottle. And you see a kid who does something and you're like, I'll be damned in a good way. You know, I love that. It happens in parenting too. And it's always when you least expect it. It was amazing. So it paid off. It paid off for Keating, but it was, it was risky as hell. Yeah. Yeah. And again, we launch into the Wagnerian soccer opera. Right. Of them carrying Keating after presumably they've won a soccer game. It's a powerful image that, you know, they're literally supporting him, which is kind of funny because typically teachers support students. Right. And there's, there's a connection and there's a relationship and in the right dynamic, I mean, there are classes that I still have such a fondness for because Mm -hmm. of what I got to see them experience and what they were able to do for each other. 
every once in a while you get a group and you're just gobsmacked by how incredible they are. Not necessarily academically, just as people. I love that. And that night they meet for another Dead Poet Society meeting. And Neil introduces a phenomenal item. He brings in a lamp. The God of the Cave. Charlie brings the sax. Which he plays really well. He does. And then this is when a lovesick knocks. He can't take it anymore. He's like, carpe diem, even if it kills me. I'm going to call Chris. And he calls her and she invites him to a party at the Danbury house because Chet's parents will be away. And he hangs up and she has said yes. And he says, yop. His barbaric yop. So the next day we get another one of Keating's lessons, this time in the courtyard. This is when he invites the three students to walk around and they begin to walk in unison. Soon the rest of the class begins clapping to the sound of their footsteps. And Keating warns them of the dangers of conformity. And he encouraged the students, you guys need to think on your own in ways that are unique to you. And of course, this entire lesson is being watched by the headmaster from a window. That evening, Todd is really bummed out because it's his birthday and his parents gave him a stupid desk set that's identical to the stupid desk set they gave him last year for his birthday. And um, it's just clear they don't know him at all. They don't care about him. And Neil finds him and tries to cheer him up by suggesting he throw the desk set because it looks so aerodynamic. And so he does it and they both laugh. But what's interesting is this was not originally part of the script. Right. That that he that Weir sent off the two boys and said, figure it out. Todd had a monologue and it just wasn't working. And so he told the two boys, go off and see what what might work better for this scene. And this is what they came up with. And they let him they let him go with it. So at the next Dead Poet Society meeting, Charlie, who now goes by Nawanda, Nwanda. yes, like his warrior name, he brings two girls into the cave. It's funny because the guys are annoyed, but they're also intrigued because who doesn't want girls there? But then again, this is our thing. They also clearly demonstrate we don't know how to talk to women. Oh my God, right? It's actually a really nice back and forth because we keep going from the cave and the meeting to Knox and Knox arrives at the Danbury's for the party. And what's he dressed in? He's dressed in a tie and jacket. And like he does not know how to be at a high school party. I mean, it's a typical party. There's dancing and drinking and making out. Like it's very, very typical. You kind of see him like wandering around like any of us. We've all been in that kind of social environment where we know no one. Right. And suddenly, well, if you don't know anyone, what's really good is when you have a drunken football player. <laughs> Who sits there and he's like, hey, you Mutt Sanders' brother? Right. <laughs> so he's mistaken for Mutt Sanders' brother. He gets drunk with the football players. And yep. he's soon sitting on the couch. He's drunk. You know, a passed out Christine is essentially right next to him, like in his lap. He decides to risk it all. He says, carpe diem. And he kisses her on the forehead. Only to be caught and pummeled by Chet. Chris is yelling at Chet to stop and Knox has a bloody nose. And he, so he bolts from the party and he returns to school. And he's apologizing to Chris the entire time. Meanwhile, back in the cave, the girls are handing around alcohol. One of the girls says, don't you guys miss having girls around here? And they cut to the boys. Yes. (laughs) And suddenly this is where Charlie says, I published an article in the school paper in the name of the dead poets, demanding girls be admitted to Welton. 
the guys get pissed. They're like, you don't speak for the club. And of course, now there's this very serious school meeting that has to address the issue with the entire student body where the headmaster's like, we're going to get to the bottom of this. I am asking any and all students who know anything about this to make themselves known here and now. That's exactly what it is. And then, of course, we hear a phone ring. And Charlie answers it. And um, he tells the headmaster, oh, it's God. Yeah. And um, he's calling because he wants girls to attend Welton. The next shot, you, you have Charlie standing in Nolan's office. And he gets the paddling of his life for this stunt. And he refuses to rat out the members of the Dead Poet Society. Nolan's very clear. What is this Dead Poet Society? I want names. And we get to him and Neil's like, what did you tell him? What did you tell him? And he, and he turns around and he says, damn it, Neil. The name is Nuwanda. That's right. He's not going to rat him out. Right. Because snitches get stitches. Right. Yeah. So Keating tells the gang that their lame stunt wasn't cool and sucking the marrow out of life doesn't mean choking on the bone. It was a lame stunt. Stupid Charlie trying to be so funny all the time. Well, but Charlie doesn't think the rules apply to him ever. Yeah, this is true. He's the rebel. 100%. Yep. And we cut to Neil at the theater. Yeah, Neil's in rehearsal. He's honestly never looked happier. And we have the foreshadowing. He comes back. His dad is there. His dad is pissed. You made a liar out of me, Neil. You made a liar out of me. Basically, you made me look like a fool. He demands that Neil quit the play. And opening night is tomorrow night. I don't care if the world comes to an end tomorrow night. Foreshadowing, foreshadowing, foreshadowing. Which you are through with that play. So Neil seeks out advice. Exactly. He meets with Mr. Keating and Mr. Keating's like, look, I just think you really need to just talk to your father, like tell him how you really feel. And, you know, Neil has tried to do this before and and he's trying his best to get some answers to a really hopeless situation. And Neil tells him, look, I'm trapped. And Keating's like, I assure you, you are not. I guess what it comes down to is Keating sees the possibilities of what it could be. Do you think that the signs were there for Keating and he missed them? Or do you think that Neil was trying so hard to essentially put on a brave face for Mr. Keating that he wouldn't have seen them? From a professional perspective, I don't think there's enough in Neil's behavior that Keating should have known he was going to commit suicide. Okay. I, the, this isn't the one where I think Keating should have known. The one that I find myself going, he should have known is when Neil comes back to him and says, I talked to my dad. Okay. And now we're back to Knox. Oh, he arrives at Chris's school. Oh my God. He brings her flowers. He's going to recite a poem to her. He follows her into a classroom. Like everyone is around. It's so cringe. In spite of like how embarrassed Chris is, all of it. Knox returns to the school and he is triumphant. And everyone's like, what'd she say? What'd she say? And he answers nothing, but I did it. Yep. And there's something to be said for that. Yeah. I mean, it's the grand gesture. And then we have the scene. This is the one that I I don't buy. Neil is supposed to be an actor and he's supposed to love performing. And he has certainly been just as Keating pointed out in the previous scene. He's like, you've been acting for your father. You've been playing the dutiful son. Yes. Now he's going to play the, I did the right thing. I talked to my dad and he said it was okay. 
it's total bullshit. And he tells him like, I talked to my dad and you know what? He wasn't happy, but he's going to allow me to continue with the play. And then he pauses. He's like, he won't be able to make it. He's going to be in Chicago. You know, that's the point where I'd be looking going, Keating, come on. You, I'm not saying you know his dad, but you know enough of his father based on what he said that there's no way he's just going to roll over and be like, oh, yeah, you can go be an actor now. Right. Because he told him, like, I think my dad will let me continue on with this. Like, right. it's going to be OK. I do wonder if it's what he was hoping for. There's still doubt in his eyes. I see. Right. So I think he smells a rat. Again, does he smell a rat enough to say, aha, now you're going to commit suicide? No. No. So it's opening night. Boys are getting ready for the play. It's- Charlie gets red. <laughs> Charlie with his symbol of virility on his chest. Yes, he's feeling very potent tonight. And um, <laughs> Chris arrives at Wilton to confront Knox over his embarrassing stunt. He tells her, I love you. And and I mean, Chris makes a really good point. She says, you say that over and over, but you don't even know me. Yes. And he asks for the one chance and she turns around. And she's like, you are so infuriating. And then makes a little gesture with her, you know, what mittened glove. Mm-hmm. Like, come with me. He starts walking towards her and he does that little spin around of like, <laughs> I'm on top of the world. Yep. And so now we're at the play and Neil nails his performance. It's phenomenal. But right before he gives his closing monologue, he sees his father standing in the back. Oh, shit. And we have a brief cutaway where we see Knox, who makes the big move, and goes to take Chris's hand. and They hold hands. Neil delivers the closing lines of the play, which are incredibly apropos. And the audience goes crazy. And the Dead Poet Society give him a unified yawp. And we see the hint of things going bad. We do. I mean, because after the play, like everyone is so excited to see him and tell him what an amazing job he's done. And Neil's father is escorting him out of the theater as quickly as humanly possible. And this is when Mr. Keating stops him to tell him like, Neil, you were amazing. You were fantastic. And his dad. You stay away from my son. Yep. And the look on Keating's face is like. Oh, shit. Well, and that's where he should have known. Maybe he didn't. But, you know, he recognizes it, what it is. And when the boys are like, you know, even Charlie's keeps saying like, Mr. Perry, Mr. Perry. And Keating says, don't make it any worse than it is. He knows. He knows. It's, gone bad. it's not good. And we cut to mom smoking in the <sighs> Perry office. Tells him that's it. I'm pulling you out of Welton. You're enrolling in a military school to prepare you for your education at Harvard and your career in medicine. It is a done deal. The mom is sitting there with her little silent crying. It's horrible. Again, 1959. This is pre-women's movement. She's mm-hmm. she's not going to speak up. She's nope. going to get her ass handed to her. Right. His dad gives him a chance. Now, would that necessarily change his mind? No, but he gives him a chance. What is it? Is it more of this acting thing? And he's got the chance. There's the opening. Damn it. Say something. It wouldn't have mattered. He's it doesn't tried. Matter. It, it doesn't, wouldn't have mattered. But it doesn't matter. It's like Knox, you know, but I said it, but I did it. You know, that at least you said it to your dad, even if he doesn't listen, even if you understood him to go into this military academy. But Neil doesn't do that. Neil, you could argue, Neil is not capable of doing that. And I, I did read some stuff that talked about the counterpoint between Todd and Neil. That when, you know, the story starts, Todd is the quiet, you know, 
introvert, can't do anything, can't go out and draw any attention right. to himself. And Neil is the happy-go-lucky, sure, whatever, I'll tell you. And now we've switched roles because now Neil is the top. He is quiet. He cannot speak up for himself. But only in this environment, only with his father. Right. And when his father leaves to go to bed and we have him reflecting and he's like, I was really good. And you can argue that's not just in the play. I was really good. And it's now past tense. And Oh, that breaks my heart, Pat. I hadn't even considered that. And mom is, you know, sobbing in bed and dad is, you know, it's going to be okay. I'm just going to be okay. And we have this montage of sorts with the window open and it's cold and he puts on Puck's hat and he's shirtless and you have a rising creepy music, which is phenomenal throughout the whole movie. Mm-hmm. You see him with the key and he removes a bundle from his dad's nightstand and we see him at the desk and rising music. And I really like the way that we're shot it. You don't hear the gunshot. You see when the music cuts short and you know, Mr. Perry jerks up in a bed. What was that? And going from room to room and mom's checking, I'll check outside, Neil. And there you go. And he goes into the, the office and you see, he doesn't see anything, but he starts inhaling and he smells the gunpowder. Oh, I just got chills, Pat. I just got chills. This is the hardest scene. You see the gun and then he turns a little bit more at the angle and you see Neil's hand oh. and you see the anguish and the pain and the horror. And and then his mom, who oh. just keeps hysterically repeating, he's all right, he's all right, he's all right, he's all right, he's all right. And she can't oh stop. God. One of the other pieces I found that talked about it, they said they had a real problem with Dead Poet Society, that just like 13 Reasons Why, it glorified a suicide. Okay. And I don't think it does. And the reason I don't think it does is because you see immediately, you see the effect of what his action has done to those who care about him. Even if his father cares about him in a really crappy way and we want him to care about him in a better way. they don't glorify Neil after the fact. They don't glorify him at the institution. I don't think this was glorified at all. I don't think so either. We go immediately from that shot of his parents' reaction to Charlie waking up Todd with Meeks and Pitts and Knox. Notice Cameron is not there right away. Why did they tell him? Why didn't, I mean, this is literally Todd's dorm mate, his roommate. I I was surprised that the school hadn't reached him first. Well, again, this is 1959. We don't believe in warm fuzziness. I guess. Charlie Meeks, Pitts, and Knox wake him up. And this was one of the things that the reason they moved it to Delaware is that the snow symbolizes death. That you see them walking one after another through the snow. And it was actually a spontaneous snowstorm that happened while filming. And Peter Weir was inspired to relocate it to fit the snow. Right. Because this scene was supposed to be filmed indoors. Right. And so he did it in one shot. He did the thing with with Todd stumbling away after he's gotten sick to himself. Mm -hmm. And then he's stumbling and screaming out, you know, Neil. Todd's reaction. I mean, he's literally sick over it. He is. And he screams. It was his father. It was his father. Right. And then we have the scene in this is the one that, oh my God, I choke up just talking about it. And we have Keating in the classroom sitting at his desk mm-hmm. and he goes to Neil's desk and he takes out the five centuries of verse mm-hmm. and he sits down at Neil's desk and he reads the opening again and he breaks down. 
and you see him you know kind of pull it together shut the book symbolism mm-hmm. and he reclaims the book mm-hmm. that has that he has given to him and nolan at the request of neil's family I intend to conduct a thorough inquiry into this matter. See, okay. At the request of Neil's family, I have to do a thorough inquiry because it couldn't have possibly been me who drove my son to suicide. It's got to be something else. Got to blame someone. Charlie calls it in the next one. He's like, you know, schools go down for things like this. They need a scapegoat. And they're, you know, you, you know, clearly they've been talking and they're like, yep, Cameron's a rat. He's up in Nolan's office now thinking. Right now. Mm-hmm. And we finally get the scene that we've been waiting the whole movie for. I don't know about you, but when he, you know, Cameron blaming Keating and he's like, let Keating fry. I mean, why ruin our lives? And Charlie turns around and just decks him. Cameron says we were the victims. Us and Neil. Mr. Keating put us up to this. You can't save Keating, but you can save yourself. Cameron's doing in the explosion and in the controversy and in the scandal that this is going to cause, he's doing the right thing to look out for number one. But of course, that's not the right thing to do. And so we then see each boy being taken in. Meeks comes back broken. Knox goes, giving Todd a quick thumbs up and Todd smiles. And Todd goes to Meeks's door and he's, you know, go away. I have to study. And Todd says, well, what did you tell them? And Meeks says, nothing they didn't already know. Todd Anderson. It's his turn. His parents are there in the headmaster's office waiting. He's basically forced to admit that he's a member. They want him to sign a document outlining Keating's abuse of authority. Yes. And of course, he sees that all the other members, his friends have signed and he reluctantly signs. I mean, effectively speaking, this is going to end Keating's teaching career. Exactly. Can't move on from this. I'm sure it's going to get headlines. So no one's going to blame him. Try to save the school. Try to save his his own ass. Parents have someone to blame. Right. And we have McAllister walking the boys around and pointing out all the characteristics of the building. And he turns and Keating is at the window and he waves. And we see Keating on the inside waving back and all of his stuff is packed. We're now in the classroom. And of course, he's taken over the English class. He used to be an English teacher. He's, he's going to be teaching the class until a suitable replacement is found. We see Nolan come and said, where were you, Mr. Anderson? And Todd can't get a word out. He's stammering. He's struggling. Right. They brought in no counseling. They brought in no help. Of course not. Why would they? They'll be fine. And, and so then, of course, who does he turn to? Mr. Cameron. And he's mm-hmm. like, uh, uh, we skipped around a little bit. We covered this. And of course, Mr. Nolan says, what about the realists? And then he starts, what is poetry? And you go, oh, God. Oh, God. And just <laughs> at that moment, Keating enters coming to get his personals. And this is a very different Keating. I mean, just the way he stands, he's almost like a little kid. And Mr. Nolan is, you know, dad and pissed right. dad. And he's like, should I get them later? And he's like, get them now, Mr. Keating. And so he goes walking and there's a very poignant shot where he passes Charlie's desk and it's empty. And he goes to the back room and he's getting some things together. And of course, that's all we can do is our poor whipped puppy of Todd and there's a, there's a long eye connect. Yes. And Keating sort of smiles at him like it's going to be okay or as much as he can say. Right. And he's walking by and we have the, you know, Mr. Keating, the video, and, and, and you know, Todd can't let him leave. So in the same way that Neil couldn't say something to his dad, right. Todd, of all people, is demonstrating the strength 
and the ability and the resilience to stand up and say, damn it, I'm going to say it even if I get in trouble. Carpe diem, even if it kills me. Right. And and just like Knox, I did it. It doesn't matter what the result is. I, I did, did it. it. Keating is trying to be conciliatory. He's like, I know, you know, I understand. Right. I mean, he's trying to tell him like, we were forced to sign it. And, and he's like, I know, I know. And, and the headmaster all the while is telling him, be silent, be quiet. And then he turns and says, the leave, Mr. Keating. I said, leave. And you're like, this is not a man who is used to repeating himself. And the door opens. He's about to walk out. And we have the rising music. And we see, (sighs) oh, my God. We see Todd, one foot, and then the other. Oh, Captain, my captain. And he turns and faces. And Nolan is apoplectic. He just turns around here, sit down, Mr. Anderson. And, and of course, Todd isn't listening to him at all. And I started, I wanted to see the order of what it was. We have Todd, who goes first. Stands on his desk. And then it's Knox. And then we have like a unnamed blonde who gets up. And then we see Meeks, who does mm-hmm. it. And Cameron is looking up and around at all of these people standing. And then Hopkins, who was our smartass, the, you know, the cat sat on the mat. Hopkins stands. You know, in my memory of this moment, this climax of the film, everyone except Cameron stood on their desk. I remember the same thing, but I counted this time. It was like, what, only nine or 10? Yes. It was roughly about half the kids, I would say. I was reading about this and in the script, Cameron was supposed to stand on the desk. And the actor took a chance when he was auditioning and he said, I don't think he would do this which I think is brave in and of itself. So do I, because I don't think that character, Cameron totally threw him under the bus to save themselves. No, 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 no. He would not have stood on his desk. But I do think that the shot of him looking up is the realization of maybe that wasn't the right choice. Right. You know, and of course, the rising music, we're all wrecks. And we see the close-up on Robin Williams as John Keating says, thank you, boys. Thank you. And the camera cuts over to Todd's face and he still looks stricken and he still looks horrified, but damn it, he stood up for something. He did it. Um, I do find it funny that you can't see Nolan anymore um, in that final shot. And all the Um, while he's just yelling expulsion threats at everyone. Sit down, sit down, sit down. (laughs) When you take away any authority, you know, the threat doesn't mean anything to anyone. I mean, it didn't mean anything to Charlie first right away. And you know they all stood because that meant the world to them. I mean, you could never do a sequel to this. Um, but I've always wondered, like, what what effect did that have on them in the world to go through such traumatic thing your senior year and move forward from it? And in reflecting on the film, Robin Williams said that Dead Poet Society was one of his favorite films from his career. He said, I met a guy who said, Mr. Williams, I saw the movie Dead Poets, and I used to work for a major corporation. I took off my business suit, I burned it, and now I own an art gallery. And Robin Williams said, I went, oh, I guess I have to buy a lot of art from you now. (laughs) (laughs) Robin Williams being the kind of person, the kind of performer, the kind of actor, just the kind of human he was. I got lucky enough to see him, you know, one of his last uh, performances over at the uh, at the Universal Amphitheater before they closed that. Oh, wow. And what was what blew me away because I saw the HBO special later that year is that I realized a full half of the show that we saw was made up. 
it was customized to being in Los Angeles and Hollywood. Isn't that and amazing? The, people there, the exuberance and I guess more than anything, the life, the vitality that he showed, seeing what that brought to the world. Um, I have a big print of him on my wall. You know, it's like next to my pictures of my family and some other things I feel very, very strongly about. And I have kids every time who sit there and they go, is that your dad? Oh my <laughs> and God. Go, and I go, no, no, he's just one of my heroes. Right. Yeah. I mean, what a tremendous loss, a comedic genius. He was so phenomenal in this dramatic role. I was surprised he did not win best actor. That waited until, can you say it? You know it. Goodwill Hunting. So, yeah. And, you know, I mean, we're talking about this film now, 34 years later, Pat, it's Good Lord. as fantastic as it ever was. And, you know, the original screenwriter, Tom Schulman, he adapted the script for the stage and it opened off Broadway in 2016 with Jason Sudeikis as Professor Keating. Nice to know that Ted Lasso has gone and done well. <laughs> yes. Maybe the message about it is, you know, we, we talk about how teenagers don't think they can die. They think that they're untouchable. But I think there's more to it. And it's okay to be able to talk about death and to be upfront about it. And Shakespeare had a, had a line that he said, um, a woman should give birth a stride a grave because the moment we're born, we start dying, mm -hmm. which is a dark image. But it's still true. And if you say, look, you know, human beings, the human species is one of the only that knows we're, we're aware of our mortality, um, mm -hmm. we're reminded of it, certainly. And it simply becomes a question of, okay, so if you're going to die, what do you want to do with the time you do have? Exactly. That's the message is, you know, and it is carpe diem. That's the message. Make your lives extraordinary. I think Robin Williams is a prime example of someone who did precisely that because yeah. from Mork and Mindy to his film career, to his animated career, to his stand-up, you know, he, he had a rocky ride on his personal life. And unfortunately, you know, the, the ride was ended. I mean, it's going to end for everyone sometime, but his was, it was so harsh. You know, if you gotta go, he leaves a hell of a legacy behind. Doesn't he though? Thank you for inviting me on the journey. Pat, well, I have to tell you, I'm doing a new thing in season three. Oh, okay. It's a fun little way to wrap things up. I've got some lightning round questions for you. Some of these are Gen X. Some of them aren't. Go for it. All right. Pearl Jam or Nirvana? Uh, I'm Pearl Jam. I, I got to see them at uh, Lollapalooza 2 with Soundgarden. And it was just an nice. incredible Nice. Okay. Best fast food fries? Um. I'm a sucker for In-N-Out fries. Wow. That is controversial. I know. I think it's the fact that they're packaged in such a way that I can shovel them into my mouth while driving. <laughs> That's fair. Okay. Favorite 90s fragrance? This is where my Gen X fades. And oh, you're going to no. laugh at I'm me. I'm going to pull your Gen X card. My scent memory is always, um, it's a combination of two. It was either um, Old Spice um, aftershave. Which or, I love. Mm -hmm. or, or the lime uh, English leather. English leather. I forgot about that. Yeah, but it, it's got to be lime. It's not, there's the other one as well. There's like the original, but lime had, had the zing to it. Okay. Did you ever own a bucket hat? I did not. Okay. This is a 90210 reference. Kelly or Brenda? Uh, neither. I never watched. Not even one episode. Wow. I know. Well, the next question is, 
what was your first car? But I just had Kate on the pod and I asked her that same question and it is apparently her security question. So she left her answer at it was a Honda. So I know (laughs) that your first car was a Honda. Okay. Were you a latchkey kid? Yes. After school snack of choice. Ooh. Okay. You know, my mother and my mother do you know the Nature's Valley granola bars? They're so good. The honey ones. I, I, I like those if I had to. And I was a huge fan of peanut butter and jelly. So. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, film that traumatized you most as a kid? I think it was The Watcher in the Woods. I had nightmares. That's Kate's answer too, by the way, Pat. Just terrified the hell out of me. Who thought this was a good idea for kids? <laughs> it's very dark. Okay, your first concert. That would have been the, in fact, it should have been Kate's first concert as well. Uh, the Bon Jovi uh, New Jersey tour where it was Skid Row opening for Bon Jovi. At Irvine Meadows. Yes, that was her answer as well. Okay, and this last question is for me. Your favorite Elton John song? Um, I'm Still Standing. Oh, good one. Uh, aside from Taryn Egerton's version in Sing, I loved his version of I'm Still Standing in the animated version, which was essentially, Sing was essentially like his like audition for doing Rocket Man, okay. And he was phenomenal. I love it. I find it really inspiring. Right. It's just that you, you can do whatever you want. And, and uh, you know, it might be related to my personal experiences and the divorce and everything like that. But it, it always reminds me of the I'm Still Standing. You can do that, but I'm still standing. That's right. Oh, Pat, thank you for joining me. Thank you ever so much. Yeah, it's always such a joy to have you and particularly to talk about this film, which I know you're just a huge fan and it really changed your life. It accounts for what I do every day. That's amazing. Thank you for the opportunity. I look forward to torturing, talking, (laughs) teaching, anything again. I realize some of this probably went way too academic and I apologize, but you know, it's, it's so wedded in my mind to what I do. And that's why you were the perfect guest. So thank you. Thank you ever so much. Gen Xers, thanks so much for joining us. If you're loving the pod, I invite you to rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode. We also have a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash the Untitled Gen X podcast. You can find us on the web and the socials as always. And we hope you keep in touch, beautiful people. Bye. Bye. Bye.